Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. We broke season two's first episode, How Will COVID-19 Affect the Fatty Liver Community in 2021, into three separate conversations. In this conversation, the third one, the surfers and our guest, Dr. Manal Abdul-Malik, explore strategies to keep fatty liver patients in their own therapies, even in the absence of approved medications. At the end, Stephen Harrison and I offer two big-picture ideas for improving patient diagnosis and treatment of fatty liver disease, alongside COVID-19 diagnosis and treatment. Hope you enjoy this. Hope you learn a lot from it. Drug developers, investors, researchers, and corporate executives wrestle weekly to understand what is happening in commercial development of NASH medications. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and forecasting and pricing guru Roger Green as they discuss the issues affecting the evolving NASH market from their own unique perspectives on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. How do we motivate hepatologists and gastroenterologists who aren't spending their time in the clinical trials, that this is a worthy thing for their practice to engage? And how do we educate patients that there's now one more reason to defat your liver without scaring the stuffing out of them, or scaring the stuffing out of them to a point where it, demo- where it immobilizes them as compared to mobilizes them? I suppose if I was a physician, uh, a hepatologist, and obviously having worked in multiple hepatology departments and listening to the BSG and things like that, we're now looking at more remote um, interfacing with patients. But getting better referrals through, Ian Rowe was um, very eloquent on talking about getting the right patients through his program with FibroScan and non-invasive uh, markers in the community to get the better patients to the secondary specialist care area that are just going to be swamped. FibroScan lists have gone down again. They're over a year in um, waiting lists in some of these hospitals already. There's going to be a two-year wait for FibroScan. These staff here in the UK have been redeployed to different areas. They may even be redeployed now to vaccination programs. Um, Vlad was very confident that this wouldn't affect the trials in 2021, 2022. I would suggest we may see that that lag, as Stephen was suggesting earlier, the amount of patients that are going to need to be screened to get onto trials. They can't get through the door. So I think we'll be seeing this for a a long time. And I think if I was an endocrinologist, cardiologist, I'd again want to be assessing those patients personally better. So I'm seeing the right patient at the right time. Um, And we've got, Manal's been right and so Stephen, we've got better ways to do it now that we're learning as uh, from the opportunities that COVID sadly is presenting with us. In a speedier way, we may not have been here for another 10 years, um, but we're here now. And there's no doubt I think we need to think about doing things differently. Hospital-based physicians and providers are currently overwhelmed with the burden of COVID and COVID-related uh, complications. And those patients who uh, are accessible to us don't have access into our centralized health systems because of density control, because of concerns about being in a COVID, uh, high COVID prevalent area and are reluctant to come in. Maybe we need to think about different frameworks of visiting coordinators where you are actually coming in with a portable fiber scan or a portable ability to draw blood 
and doing home-based screening and home-based testing when access, either because of, of the health system or because of, of our patients, is is limited. Uh, we saw this happen with with different um, uh, disease bases outside of liver disease, you know, oncology, uh, hospice care, uh, visiting nurses when when access was limited uh, for health center resource utilization reasons or inability for patient to gain access. And I, I think we need to create different constructs by which to be uh, able to reach our patients with chronic liver disease. Uh, those in trials and those outside of trials um, find different ways of managing a decompensated cirrhotic in, in, in alternative strategies besides in the hospital and do so successfully um, using frameworks that work and allow us to render access to ther therapeutic drugs, uh, those that are used as standard of care, and those that are used in the context of clinical research. As I said, with, 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 with adversity comes innovation and discovery. So I think we're going to get there, and you see these wheels turning already. I'm hopeful that by uh, the middle to even end of 2021, we're going to see implementation of new strategies. Manal, you said it, I think, very eloquently at the top of the podcast that challenges create opportunities, um, obstacles create opportunities. And we'll get past this and we'll be creative in the way that we do it. And on the back end, we'll, we'll have a much better story to tell. It's just we're in the middle of it right now. And how do we, you know, how do we make lemonade out of lemons? How do we how do we find a treatment for another pandemic in the setting of a current pandemic? And, you know, it's again, it's through it's through trial and error. It's through discussions like this, uh, working together, you know, in a consensus fashion. I, I, you know, it's interesting to me. We've had more dialogue with patient advocacy groups in the past six months than I've had in the past 10 years, whether it's GLI or Fatty Liver Foundation or whoever, there really is a move to synergize what we're doing to reach the patients at the greatest need. We're well on our way to doing that. It's not going to be without ongoing challenges. You know, people thought that just get to the first quarter of 2021 and it'll all be better. Well, it, it will get better, but it, you know, uh, there are hiccups along the way, even with, even with our best treatments, uh, there are hiccups. So we're moving in the right direction, I would say, and we just need to keep, keep our nose to the grindstone, Roger, and, and keep trying to deliver the message uh, like we're doing today and, and in other, as many other formats as we can. Right. Yes. Yeah, so as we do every weekend, I think that's right about the other formats. Um, so it seems to me that clinical trials, we know what to do. We just have to keep on keeping on and become a little more creative about how to do it. I think that's what I'm hearing. Okay. Uh, mass population, much tougher, right? But um, it feels to me that the two linchpins there are finding a way to educate about the COVID liver length, the patients, and the doctors, by the way, 
to, to motivate the people who treat patients but aren't actively involved in clinical trials, whether in fact, as Louise says, they are endocrinologists and cardiologists who may be involved in other clinical trials, but not our clinical trials, but see our patients and understand the impact of metabolic syndromes, or whether they're hepatologists and gastros and even internists who have a significant portion of their practice just in, in line patient treatment. In that vein, we're, we're, we're still trying to work through some challenges. And, and a good example of that is what I try to do here in San Antonio and in Austin and in South Texas in the Rio Grande Valley is get out into primary care and endocrine and other GI offices and discuss fatty liver, discuss clinical trials, discuss, discuss options for our patients. Well, pre-COVID, that was very easy for me to set up a lunch and learn, you know, an early morning breakfast, coffee, something, get into the office, sit down at their desk and have a frank discussion, hand out some literature and make myself available if they have any follow on questions. Now, I can't get into the office and we try to set up Zoom calls and literally 90 percent of the time the physician is pulled away to deal with some COVID-related issue. And it so, so in the provider's mindset, fatty liver is taking a back seat because in their eyes, it's not what's killing the patient today. I can't argue with that mindset. No, no. If the urgent becomes the enemy, the important, the urgent's going to win every time. Right. So how... I think, you know, just as we'd be creative at delivering health care to our patients and continuing clinical trials, as Manal outlined with her coordinators that are outside the box thinkers and get creative with delivering drug and doing Zoom follow-up calls, how do we do that with physicians? How do we, how do we find a newer way to deliver the information that we need to deliver in a way that we know is effective. It's, it, it's a challenge to do that, particularly with our primary care colleagues. It's, it's one thing for Manal and I to get on a, a Zoom call. We do that all the time. Uh, I, I've seen Manal more this year uh, virtually than I have ever seen her in person. I've learned more about her house than I have. I've never been to her house, but I, I, I see it right now. Uh, and I use that as an illustration to say, how do we, how do we take that message and, and push it out to the level where in, in the military terminology boots on ground, we get it to the people that can affect the change, not at a, not at a, a very hierarchical level of a, of a hepatologist who spends his life in Nash but but down at the primary care level that's seeing you know a diabetic obese hypertensive hyperlipidemic patient scheduling the you know the colonoscopy the mammogram dealing with the hedis measures dealing the dealing with the HbA1c the lipid management the ASCVD risk score and oh by the way there's a fatty liver but you know Steve I love your analogy the boots on the ground and 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 the army scenario because 
it's going to take a village. And this is not all about the onus of responsibility on sites or investigators or coordinators. We really need for everybody in industry or with CROs out there who are listening, we need constructs and we need to have new allowances in protocols that were never really designed for virtual care settings. Uh, We need um, uh, potential considerations. Every time we have a COVID case now in the context of clinical trial, it will elevate liver immunotransferases and it can't be deemed a a dilly signal without a mechanism for elucidating whether it's COVID or, or not study drug. We really have to start framing some of our protocols, some of our allowances for how we execute clinical trials, for how we report adverse events, how, for how we um, uh, deal with COVID-related uh, protocol deviations or windows, um, how we capture and actually define even primary endpoints. We can't bring the volume of the that we used to There's enough debate in the field that whether that endpoint could stand alone in and of itself as a primary outcome. We need regulatory CROs, sponsors, and, and investigators and sites to reframe how we do clinical research in a new era. Um, otherwise, we're going to have stumbling stones. I think, Manel, I think that's great. And we're coming to the end of our time. So what I was going to ask everybody to do, and you may have done that, you tell me, is to take a couple of minutes and talk about a solution that either is implementable or we need to figure out how to make implementable to push the big issue forward. And I think what you just did was a fantastically eloquent description of one of those. If you got another one, go for it. And uh, while you're thinking about that, Stephen or Louise? I think I'd follow on slightly from what um, Manal said there and uh, look at the major sort of pharma industries who are looking at Nash, Naffold, and liver studies, that it's not all focused at the recruiting site, is that it is about going to educate GPs because we are now going to have to scan and screen in primary care because these patients do not want to come to secondary care. They don't want to go to big centres. So if we can actually diversify our education strategy um, at a clinical trial point to target GPs for education, for recruitment, for involvement in these studies we're more likely to get awareness on all levels and from patients because at the moment it seems to be targeted once they get to secondary care in the UK or once they get to a study site. Now, they're not that common in liver disease, as we know, Um, and people feeding into that. So, again, reinventing the wheel, finding these patients for biopsy, for ideal trial criteria. We've got the FAST score now. We've got NISFO, we've got uh, ELF, we've got lots of tools that we can utilise in a primary care setting in regions to really recruit to these studies, but in a unique way. So I suppose that that for me is following on from what Manal said. To put it in perspective, uh, what our coordinators see and what our patients experience, I'll I'll give you a little scenario that kind of puts a brushstroke on on what I I, uh, alluded to. At our site, we are density controlled. Not all coordinators can be on site and all doors are actually in lockdown with the exception of one main entrance for which all entrances have to be screened for COVID. 
Simple scenario that occurred in the context of a clinical study. A shipment of a refrigerated drug comes to site with no ability for the courier to bring it to the site. So the study drug gets diverted to the holding station for which somebody then has to go pick it up but isn't necessarily refrigerated because the person who receives it doesn't know that that it's study drug and we pick it up a day later and fortunately was still temperature controlled. However, a minor scenario like that raises concern that we've received study drug, it got transverted, it maybe got delayed in shipment, uh, got received by the wrong individual, nobody was informed, and and the patients couldn't potentially get it in the time frame that they needed to get it within window because there is a delay in getting their access to site. And immediately my head turned is why could not in an IVRS system that drug not been released directly to a patient and the shipment been directly sent to a home and reconciled? I mean, there are unique nuances that nobody ever really thinks about until you're in the moment and you experience it and you said, Could we have managed this differently? But under the current way of, of, of how things are operating, there would have been no way to anticipate it or change the construct of how we even manage drug dispensing. Um, and that's just pains uh, to, to sponsors and CROs, really what's happening at the ground level and how we can reframe how we do uh, implementation of public studies. It's interesting. I heard re-engineering more than I heard reframing, but I guess it's both. I mean, it's literally re-engineering the path, cutting out all the inefficient steps and making sure things get where they've got to get to as quickly as possible with this few handoffs. I think re-engineering is a better word. Just on one comment on that, and that's absolutely vital because if one step of this COVID rollout of vaccinations struggles, then the whole thing will come down, whether or not it's lack of glass to put the to create the multi-dose vials, multiple injections. My fear is we might see in the third world what happened with Egypt. We get mass vaccination with limited needles and syringes and we come back round with a, a viral illness of a hepatitis C type scenario in the future with the way this could be rolled out for speed. But I'm hoping that won't happen. I'm going to end with this provocative thought. Something for you to think about before our next podcast. Imagine a scenario where the UK has a thousand vaccination sites around the country. That being replicated at thousands of sites in the US and around the world. And at the same time, we have portable fiber scans there at the vaccination site, filling out a questionnaire, which they already do anyway, describing their comorbidities. If they hit on a couple of those buzzwords like diabetes, like obesity, hypertension, metabolic syndrome, get your vaccination. If you're interested, get your fiber scan. We have these cool chemical analyzers called piccolos. We use them in the military. You can actually do a finger stick and get an ALT and AST and an HbA1c in less than 15 minutes. Get your fiber scan, get your liver enzymes checked at the time you get your vaccination. And if it's positive, we have people there at the site to teach you what that means and refer you to follow on care. Imagine what that would do 
to disease state awareness. I, I love, love it. I, I love that. I love that. And we've been uh, preaching that for for months on this podcast. <laughs> but 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 I love the idea. The way you make the urgent, not the enemy, the important is when people do what's urgent, you make them also learn what's important, which is what Stephen just described. I think that's great. I, if we're going to dare to dream, let me do one more. Um, at what point does it become appropriate to ask if compassionate use protocols for the best defatting drugs in trial make sense for people where we believe that their liver fat levels and other comorbidities make them a particularly high risk not to survive a COVID infection. I think we, we, that's a very strong consideration for those patients, particularly who advance, have advanced hepatic fibrosis. Yeah. Uh, we, we cannot leave the highest risk cohort, our patients with obesity, diabetes, and cirrhosis uh, without uh, compassionate access and, and easy access to to therapeutics that can particularly improve their um, clinical outcomes or decrease uh, their risk for fibrosis. I was going to say that now, if you're free next week, I'd love to make this a two-parter. Spend next week basically all being John Lennon, imagine whatever you want to imagine, and say, okay, what are the, what, what are the things that are too bold for anyone to really think about but if we dare to dream it, maybe we could make it happen. Uh, you know, I, I would love to join you next week because I think these discussions are a highly pertinent, very important, clinically relevant, and 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 we have to have these difficult discussions in order to make forward progress. It's essential for those of us that care for disease. We have to be innovative and and push um, the, this ball forward despite the challenges. I love that idea. And um, of of bringing uh, awareness, education, the 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 prompt reportable uh, uh, endpoints like a portable fiber scan or uh, uh, you know prompt turnaround for ALT and AST and, and glycemic control to the patient as opposed to the anticipation that they're going to be brought to us. Drug developers, investors, researchers, and corporate executives wrestle weekly to understand what is happening in commercial development of NASH medications. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and forecasting and pricing guru Roger Green as they discuss the issues affecting the evolving NASH market from their own unique perspectives on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. Again, this is Roger Green. We hope you have enjoyed this conversation. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire conversation idea in general, please send an email to me at questions at surfingnash.com. We are releasing three conversations in total from this episode. Our next new episode will release on Thursday, January 14th. Stay safe and see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.